Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. And welcome, as I discovered yesterday, on the 40th plus one day anniversary of Atari's foundation. It was their birthday yesterday, so it's a very auspicious time to be mounting a games exhibition in this forum. So welcome to you all. Great to see all of you here. And I know yesterday we did the... uh, 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 opening uh, event for the uh, Game Masters exhibition downstairs, and the energy there was fantastic. And I know you're going to have the similar stimulating and energetic couple of days here at this forum. But firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which we gathered, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. So I'm Tony Sweeney, director of ACME, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Game Masters, the forum. The forum is presented as a key industry component of our public programme for Game Masters, the exhibition, which is presented exclusively in Australia as part of the Melbourne Winter Masterpieces 2012. And we're delighted, again, to be partnering with the Victorian Government through the Victorian Major Events Company and Arts Victoria to participate in what's a hugely successful Winter Masterpieces series. We've been a leading contributor to Melbourne's status as Australia's arts and culture capital for a decade now, and in late October, at the very end of this exhibition, we turned 10. So it's a very auspicious year for us. And before that, under Winter Masterpieces, we did Pixar 20 Years of Animation and Tim Burton the Exhibition. And we're looking forward to another really successful Winter Masterpieces with Game Masters. It's a very different sort of show for us, and it's represented a huge collaboration, not with an individual filmmaker, but really with the games industry in Australia and beyond. And it's been terrific to see the way the games industry has come together to help us mount this show. Without going into too much detail, the exhibition celebrates the game designer's auteur and explores the creative practice of video games through the profiling of 30 international developers from Australia and beyond. It's in three distinct sections. The first is Arcade Heroes, which focuses on the seminal early arcade games from the late 70s to the early 80s. The second section, Game Changers, profiles some of the world's most influential and successful creative designers in the present era. And then we have the Indies, dedicated to the work of independent games developers from across the globe. We've been a key supporter of uh, video games and celebrating and championing them as genuine creative and cultural forms since we were formed here. But I think this exhibition and this forum marks really the peak of what we have seen as uh, games as a cultural phenomenon. International galleries first recognised the curatorial merit of video games as a form of creative practice in the 80s, but it's been a very, very slow growth. And I think you see with two exhibitions, this and the Smithsonian are mounting an exhibition on video games as we speak as well, you really see it starting to be seen finally as an absolute leading legitimate cultural form, and that pleases us immensely. But importantly, just as much as exhibitions which get the public through, it's forums such as this one, where we can bring together the cream of Australia's established and emerging video game designers and creators, along with peers from around the world, to create a significant industry event, because it's, of course, the industry itself talking that takes the new dynamics forward. 
The panel will be introduced to you very shortly, but to all of you, all of you and all of the panel, a huge welcome to ACME. Welcome also those in the room who represent the Australian international video games industry. Now, just a quick word before we go on to the forum. We, our public programmes, and there's a little brochure about it here, is providing a really broad range of opportunities to get up close and personal with some of the most recognisable games developers in the world today. This morning's forum kicks off a series of great events for game masters, featuring game designers such as Warren Spector, Rob Murray and Tim Schaefer, and it launches an ongoing games talk series throughout the run uh, with Freeplay called Replay. Also with our principal partner, the City of Melbourne, we're presenting a terrific programme of late-night free entertainment during Game Masters on Thursdays and Fridays, and the first one is tonight, running till 10pm. All the information is in here. Now, we're delighted to have worked closely with our sister agency, Film Victoria, over many months on bringing this exhibition and this forum to you. And I know it's going to provide an amazing two days of talks, panel discussions and events that explore the intersection between video games and the broader creative industry. Today's panel will provide you with a, an amazing discussion about the industry, its future channel challenges and opportunities, and I know you want to get onto that very soon. But first, quick special mention to some of the key people who've been involved in this forum, because it's a very substantial one. Firstly, Helen Simonson, ACME Screen Events Manager. Brad Giblin from Victor Film Victoria, who will chair today's discussion. Paul Callahan from Freeplay. Tony Reid from the Games Developers Association. And Helen Stuckey and David Sermon, contributing curators to Game Masters. And now, without further ado, let me introduce Jenny Tozy, CEO of Film Victoria, to say a few words. Thanks, Tony. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that we are meeting on the lands of the peoples of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to their elders past and present and to the elders of any other Indigenous communities who may be present here today. Welcome everyone to what is going to be a great two days of information, debate and discussion here at the Games Masters Forum. Film Victoria is once again delighted to be partnering with Tony Sweeney and the ACME team to present this event, which has been specifically created to provide an industry-focused activity which complements the Melbourne Winter Masterpieces Games Masters exhibition. Uh, and once again, I mean, the ACME team have done a, a stellar job in pulling together a great exhibition downstairs, which I'm sure you'll all enjoy. It's wonderful to see so many of you here this morning and, uh, of course, um, we thank you for coming along. Our special congratulations to Conrad Bodman and Helen Simonson and their teams for pulling together the great lineup of guests and panel sessions for this symposium and, of course, our own Brad Gidblin, who has chipped in along the way. Uh, as many of you may know, Peter Molyneux has unfortunately been able to attend for personal reasons. However, the ACME team has pulled out all stops over the last few days to secure two equally impressive people, Nathan Vella of uh, Cappy Games and Daniel Cook of Spry Fox, to inspire us via Skype and join the panel discussion. Welcome to all of our international guests, particularly Tim Schaefer and Warren Spector. We're delighted to have you um, have been able to make the time to attend the forum and we do hope that you also find some time to explore the beautiful city of Melbourne while you're here. Whilst we all know these talented games masters by reputation and have no doubt played their games, it's quite special to be able to engage with them so intimately over the next two days and hear their thoughts on the state of play for the games industry and where the next bit of fun might be coming from. Film Victoria has been a leader in supporting the growth of the games industry in Australia and we take this opportunity to congratulate our games companies on their many successes. 
It's worth noting that since December 2010, through the coalition government, we have provided funding worth more than $1.2 million to games developers in Victoria. Whilst there is no doubt that the part that games play in the lives of Victorians today, be they preschoolers, teenagers, Gen Yers, or those of us who are baby boomers, uh, Film Victoria looks forward to continuing to support our games developers in creating the next wave of brilliant ideas that will keep us entertained. The extensive Games Masters arcade exhibition that ACME have created downstairs celebrates the best of gameplay from the past. The panel sessions programmed over the next two days start in the present and look to the future of the games industry. There are some provocative and insightful sessions coming your way. I hope you find these inspiring and that they leave you brimming with ideas and a sense of excitement for what lies ahead. Please enjoy the next two days and uh, I'd like now to pass you over to Brad Gibbon. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny, and thank you, Tony. Can I just say that I am supremely excited to be up here in front of you all and in front of some guests that I'll introduce uh, just in a moment. But I think it's a, a going to be a fantastic year for games with free play, with GCAP, with Game Masters, the forum, as well as the exhibition. I think it's a fantastic time to be in Melbourne. Some of us last night got a bit of a sneak peek, uh, sneak peek into the Game Masters exhibition, which I'm sure you will all get a, a chance to see over the next three months while it's showing. I think it's a, an incredible, incredible exhibition, and it kind of struck me as I was up there watching Tony and a few others and uh, Tim Schafer open the exhibition that we have Tim Schafer and Warren Spector in Melbourne opening what Tony said and, and what we believe to be the world's largest ever exhibition on video games, which is pretty incredible for that to happen right here in Melbourne. And I think also incredible for us to be able to have people like Schaefer and Spectre on stage, and they'll be joining us over the next two days alongside the Rob Murrays of the world, the Steve Faulkners of the world, and our local homegrown talent. So it's, it's pretty exciting, and I, and I think something that um, I'm going to look forward to and uh, enjoy over the next two days. Um, so I've got a little bit of housekeeping before we get into, into this morning's events. Um, we are being joined, you can't really tell, but we're being joined by some students at Deakin University in Geelong and Burwood via video conference. We're also being joined by some students in Ballarat. So if you hear any, any quirks, any glitches in the background, that's, that's them watching along. I can see that there's a, a darkened room full of people <laughs> in addition to this one. Uh, which is quite fitting because we're also being joined by people on the other side of the world. Um, as you're all aware, and Jenny and Tony, uh, Jenny and Tony have already said, uh, we obviously were put a little bit on the back foot last Friday with uh, Peter Molyneux's news, and our thoughts go out with Peter and his family. We have, uh, with the assistance of uh, the fine folks at Acme, pulled together what we believe is is very adequate and capable replacements to Peter, which is big shoes to fill for somebody that essentially invented the God game and has an order of the British Empire. Kind of impressive. So uh, as much as I'm excited for these two guys, I, I, I do kind of, you know, big shoes to fill. I, I wouldn't want to be in their situation. So we, we will be relying on the wonders of Skype as well. Um, <laughs> you, no, don't leave. Please don't leave. Um, so we're going to be relying on Skype. Um, so obviously, if there are any def uh, technical difficulties, which we do expect, um, probably, 
please bear with us. Um, these guys on the panel are probably going to have to fill gaps and, and whatnot, but hopefully everything goes according to plan this morning. Uh, it probably won't, but now would be a good time to see if Nathan's around. Nathan, are you willing to join us? That's me, that's not Nathan. <laughs> that's Daniel Cook. Daniel, can you hear us? I can indeed. Fantastic. Well, it still looks like me, because you're looking at me, which is a little bit meta. It is, it is. This is, this is, uh, this is what I look like right here. Ah, oh, fantastic. Excellent. Hello, everyone. Welcome. So look, it's, it's fantastic that Daniel's been able to join us at, at such late notice. We had tried to fly a few people around the, around the world as of Sunday, which time differences on top of uh, the crazy hours that... Uh... <laughs> Hello, Mr. Tripletown. Um, crazy time differences aside, it just wasn't possible, but we're very, we're very stoked that Daniel's being able to join us uh, this incident from Seattle. So Daniel, who isn't, uh, well, probably is known to a bunch of you guys, Daniel Cook is from Spryfox, who uh, might be known to you through their titles like Triple Town, like Panda Poet, like Steambirds, and um, through the game that they were involved in recently, Realm of the Mad God. Um, kind of indie darlings, which is kind of cool from a bunch of people uh, who left Microsoft and, and are now, you know, striking it on the big time with, uh, with indie games. Uh, a bunch of you may also know that David Cook's, uh, Daniel Cook's other half is David Eddery, who has been out to Australia a bunch of times in the past couple of years with the Digital Distribution Summit and GCAP. So David Eddery is, is also an ex-Microsoft guy, ex-XBLA guy, and the other half of Spryfox. So it's with great pleasure that I'm, and great thanks, that I'm able to introduce uh, Daniel, and we're going to hear from him about the state of play. Over to you, Daniel. All right. Hello, everyone. How is everyone on this fine uh, Australian morning? <laughs> it's sunny here. It's summertime here. So that's a, that's a positive thing from my perspective. All right. So what I wanted to talk about today was um, game inventors. So um, I'm a game designer. That's sort of my background. And I've been making games for about 16 years and about Two years ago, I really started getting interesting in saying, all right, there's a lot of games out there. How do we take the next step forward? How do we do something big? How do we do something grand? And so I started exploring this concept of invention, game design as invention. And David and I, we started this company called Spryfox, and the focus has been, let's make original new game mechanics. We've been doing it for about two years, and in that time, we've released uh, five new original games. And we've got a whole pipeline of new ones on the way. And so, you know, Realm of the Mad God, that's a cooperative MMO permadeath uh, bullet hell shooter with retro graphics. So it's kind of this weird, odd game. Steambirds is a radial movement turn-based strategy game with planes. And there's not a lot out there like that either. Uh, Triple Town is, at first glance, it looks sort of like a match three game, but then you start to figure out that it's this city building game where games last weeks or months and players are thinking 20 to 40 moves ahead in order to build up their, uh, their city. 
Can everyone see my video? No, that's not happening. One second. This is the technical glitch you were promised. <laughs> Let's try that. Ta-da. Um, so with this invention, um, all this comes from this sort of this, this, this personal feeling that I have about what games are. And so we tend to think of games as art. I tend to think of games as these engines of applied psychology. We've got, uh, we've got code and we've got interfaces and we've got feedback systems. We call them graphics, but they're really just feedback systems. Um, and then we've got players and all these th things interact in this extremely functional manner. You can have a broken game. You can have a game that does not work just as you can have math equations that do not balance or code that does not compile. You have a, can have a game that you try to run this software on, on a player's head and it just simply fails. Um, so it's this mechanical thing. So some of the metaphors of mechanical creation come to mind. Now this is a picture of a, an engine. This is a, this is a um, internal combustion engine and it is a very classic type of engine and people have been making these for, for well over a hundred years. And just like engines, we could make another game that uses the same old mechanical formulas as before. But as a game designer, as an inventor, what I wanna do is build a game that's new. I wanna build a new, a new mechanical system that no one has ever seen before. I don't want to build a two-stroke engine or something. I want to build a rocket ship. I want to build a rocket engine that like changes how people experience games. We've been doing this for a very long time. From this is Space War, and Space War was a game that was invented by engineers, by people fiddling with hardware and technology. And they figured out that if you had these little ships running around in a gravity pool, that it was actually quite fun. That was an invention. The entire industry is founded on this concept of inventing these new mechanical systems. Um, if we look at um, Miyamoto and his uh, addition of this crazy thing called jumping to a platform game, um, no one had ever done this before. And by doing this, by creating this concept of jumping on a 2D screen from a particular perspective, he invented this entire genre of hundreds and hundreds of platformer games that we enjoy st still to this day. Um, and without him, without that inventor at the heart of these new game genres, we wouldn't have half the entertainment experiences that we have today in the uh, game industry. Uh, Id... Uh, John Romero and John Carmack with uh, this. This is an interesting one because they took this sort of unique bundle. They added 3D graphics and this first-person aiming and then real-time combat, and they combined it, all these ingredients together into something that was completely new and unique at the time. And again, that spawned an entire world of uh, new, new types of first-person shooter games. So inventors drive this industry forward, and they have in the past. And most importantly, they will in the future. So I look out there, 
and I say, well, who else is driving things forward right now? Are there still inventions? Is the time of invention past? And it's so easy to find that it's not past. You just look out there. Um, Johann Sebastian Joust, which is experimenting with crowd play and motion control in new and interesting ways. There's this great indie game called Artemis that you should all check out, which is basically a simulation of the Star Trek Enterprise bridge. You get four people with laptops. It's incredibly geeky, which I like as well. Uh, you get four people with laptops in the living room with one big television screen up front, and everyone takes on a separate role. So one person's the captain and one person's engineering, and they're sitting there yelling out at each other like, shields, raise the shields, um, in the middle of their living room. And it's a play experience that has never existed before in the history of the universe. Um, mobile is, of course, exploding. You've got touch and you've got rhythm and you've got new styles of art, all making these new types of games that we've never seen before. And even with something like Triple Town, which is a very old genre, right? The 2D puzzle game on a grid, where there's still opportunities for invention by changing the algorithms at the heart of the game, that mechanical heart of the game. You create something that has, a, has strategies and techniques for play that have never existed before. They're, they're new to the world. That's the power of invention, and it's still going on today. So... Why, why, should, why should you invent? Why should we bother to invent? Um, I, I talk to some people and they're like, we can just copy others and churn out sequels, right? But this is a secret. This is, this is something I've discovered by going through the process of invention. I found that there's actually some advantages to it, that um, if you do it right, you can get these. The simplest one is uh, product differentiation. Because there's so many new platforms out there, there's hundreds of game teams releasing games every single month. It gets quite crazy. And there's this huge backlog that you're competing against. However, by having a game that's unique, that no one's ever seen before, that's deeply enjoyable, you end up standing out from the crowd. And one thing that I've been surprised by, by making innovative games, is that it's really, really easy to stand out from the crowd if you have an original innovative game. And standing out from the crowd gets you distribution, gets sales, gets press. It's an amazing thing. Um, the other one that is that you can do, you can actually put out a lot less and get a bigger bang for your buck. So a classic example is if you look at um, the MMO market, it's a very mature market. Um, Something like Star Wars, the old, old Republic is sort of the peak of that genre. And for maybe, you know, arguably five to cent, five to 10% better improvement in that genre, in order to get that incremental improvement, they had 665 developers working on it for years. And they spent 150 to $200 million. Um, now, they did a good job. It is what it is. But that's a lot of money for a small improvement over the status quo. Um, when we did, looked at Realm of the Mad God, we had three developers working at any one time. It was sweat equity, so the whole thing was bootstrapped. Um, and we were able to do this because there was nothing else competing with it. There were no other games like it, so therefore we didn't have to invest in these really, really expensive things like art. And um, I mean, you can see the art 
kind of a major difference. Um, but the players didn't care because they were getting this wonderful new engine of a game that they had never, ever seen before. The last benefit is if you do it right, you can seed an entire new market. So an example of this might be Doom. Um, there weren't first-person shooters, and then Wolfenstein and then Doom and Quake ended up creating this entire genre of first-person shooters, and there was all these other companies were putting marketing into advertising these things, but because they got in early, they established a brand that ended up um, lasting them for decades, and things like Sims and Grand Theft Auto and Lemmings are, are, are equal examples of that. So uh, there's one thing I would ask you to do if you're interested in invention. There's two classes of invention. Chris Crawford, one of the, the greatest living game theorists out there, sort of came up with this back in the 80s. There's little invention, which is the 10% improvement. It's, the, it's like, there's this thing that I really like, and I'm going to make it a little better by adding something to it. And then there's big invention, which is sort of what they did with Wolfenstein or what happens with The Sims, where you take this bundle of ideas and you mix them together and you create something that's at least 80% unique. And that's more of what you find with uh, people like Peter Molyneux or Will Wright doing. And it's expensive and it's risky and so on and so forth, but it ends up changing the world at a fundamental level. So if you're going to do invention, um, be someone like Will Wright, who goes for that big invention. Don't be someone like Zynga, who goes for the little invention. Both are equivalent. Both, both, both can get you lots of money. But if you really want to change the world, just put yourself out there and try something big. Um, so I think this is a perfect opportunity. I look out there and I'm so excited by what's happening with online games and multiplayer games and mobile games and uh, games on the web and um, just the, the explosion of distribution uh, uh, channels and technologies. And there's so much opportunity. And all we have to do as game developers is invent a new type of game that takes advantage of those 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 that those gaps in the in the world that are just waiting to be filled. So, invent something. Go off. Can you hear that, Daniel? I can. I Fantastic. can. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That was that was incredible. Um, look, before we leave you, I was going to uh, just ask the audience if there's one or two questions that uh, I, I believe Daniel will be able to hear or I can, I can pass on through the microphone. Do we have a, any questions on the topic of invention? A cough? No? No. Yeah? Down the front. Yeah. So, Daniel, the question was, how do you how do you get started with innovation? Where's the starting point? What resources can help us? So, uh, there's actually a talk on uh, the GDC Vault, uh, a talk about innovation and invention that might be interesting. That goes through. I think I list like 15 or so techniques that I've personally used. 
Um, so that's, that's a good place to start. Um, the main things that I found is um, upfront, start with a big idea. Um, start with a small team. Don't make sure that your team is like, I, I usually go with like one designer and one programmer. So you don't have a lot of people, lot, no committees saying uh, that's a bad idea and this is stupid. Um, uh, focus on iteration. So start small and iterate on a working prototype and then you'll find out if it actually works. If you're too much in your head, then uh, you end up building these grand fantasies that never actually go anywhere. Um, those are three techniques that, that I've used. Um, the other one that uh, seems really, really effective from what I've seen is focusing on that mechanical core of the game first and leaving a lot of the world building and the art until later. Um, because the, the mechanical stuff is actually hard. It's mentally hard um, to deal with and to understand when it's working and when it's not. And art is really easy to deal with. Art's exciting and fun and very distracting. So um, there's sort of an order to design. And if you, if you uh, have too much fun stuff first, then you don't actually end up working on the hard stuff. Another question? Yeah? Oh, sorry. If you can just wait for the mic, then everyone can hear. Here you go. I'm on the loud voice. Um, when, when dealing with new inventions and, and new mechanics, how, how do you go about balancing um, what's unknown versus what is uh, you're inherently unusable? Right. Uh, so that's a tricky one um, because sometimes things are bad and some things are just uh, disguised by uh, poor UIs. And it's sometimes difficult to say, is there is something good at the heart or is it um, just inherently bad? What I use is I use playtests. Um, and so I, I create a prototype and then I playtest it in front of other people and I watch them and you see what they react to. And every once in a while, you'll see this glimmer of joy, like they're having fun about something. And then in the next pass of the, the, uh, the prototype, what I do is I try to amplify that fun. So all the changes I made are basically attempts to amplify what's already there. So for example, if you see someone like um, running around in circles and they really enjoy the movement of the game, but the enemies are boring and the level design is boring and so on and so forth, then what I'll do is the next pass, I'll start focusing on, well, can we... Um, update the levels so that jumping is really enjoyable? Can I add some sort of extra feedback to that so that um, the jumping, people would feel the jumping better? Maybe there's particles or maybe the motion uh, is no longer damped in the way that I had in the first prototype. So it's all about amplification of what's there. Fantastic. Uh, one more? Sorry, over here. Uh, are we ever going to reach a point where everything that can be invented uh, with games is, is already done? Like every mechanic has been thought of? And I have a slide for you if you want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Here, one sec, let me uh, share my screen again. Um, so uh, this is a man. Uh, whose name is um, Charles H. Duell, 
and he was the patent officer of uh, 1902 America. And he's often quoted as saying, everything that can be invented has been invented. And it's a real downer of a statement, and it comes up all the time. And um, it's complete bull. It, uh, it hasn't proven to be the case at any time in history, and I doubt it will ever prove to be the case. The fact of the matter is we are not dealing with some sort of uh, mythic, uh, you know, mythic story that has you know, five variations that have been told a thousand times. We're dealing with mathematics and psychology. And because we're dealing with these functional aspects of the universe, and people are a functional aspect of the universe, what ends up happening is that the permutations and the ways that we can manipulate the universe are innumerable. And technology will never stop. It just will not stop. And games are a form of technology. So Charles H. Duell supposedly said this, but this was basically people who could not invent trying to come up with excuses for why they cannot invent. So this is a thing you say to yourself to make yourself feel good about going through life and never making something big. This is not reality. This is what he actually said. So this was his real quote. In my opinion, all previous advances in the various lines of invention will appear totally insignificant when compared with those, present those which the present century will witness. I almost wish that I might live my life again to see the wonders which are at the threshold. And this was in 1902, and I feel that this is equally valid today. Like the, the games that are going to be coming out over the next century are going to amaze and delight us. Um, so it, it, it keeps me designing, that's for sure. I think that's a good, good time to finish it. Dan, thank you extremely for filling in and, and providing a, such a wonderful talk at such short notice. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Um, look, I was reminded about that, that very point um, looking through the, the Game Masters exhibition last night. When you look through, it's, it's kind of divided up into three segments. There's the, the uh, I guess, the arcade era, coming through to the start of the console era. And now, obviously, at the end of that, we're seeing the likes of Critter Crunch from Cappy, who we're going to try and get up in a moment, through to Fruit Ninja and a bunch of other local games that, let's face it, we kind of all take for granted now. They're, they're little things that, for the price of 99 cents or free or whatever they may be on the App Store on our you know, very, very handy, very portable devices, they don't seem like those incredible inventions that, that Dan's talking about. However... That start of that exhibition, going through the arcade, the, the 70s, the 80s, and looking at those games and realizing not that they were just, you know, the, the endless kind of 20-cent coin machines, but they actually formed what we know of games. They've formed the latest, the last 30 years of, you know, what we seek to design and what we're probably still designing based on those, those core mechanics and, and even, to some extent, those color palettes, those styles... Um, it's, it's really quite remarkable. So I think looking through that, and, and Dan's point is exactly right, come 50 years later, we might realize that Fruit Ninja was the turning point where we started making fruit slashing games, and it never really died off. But I think these things will kind of, they'll grow in importance over time, and, and Dan's point is certainly well taken. Um, so the other thing, I'll, as I'll point out, is um, one of the things that I didn't mention in Dan's biography is that he runs a very, very successful and, and fascinating blog, Lost Garden, if you are after more resources on innovation. And I think his, his talk on innovation at GDC, which is uh, maybe a two-hour-long talk, 
um, not just the snippet we had here. I think that's up there, but there's a wealth of resources up there if you want to check it out. So uh, I think we're going to try and get Nathan on the line. If we, I'm, I'm getting a maybe, a yes. Nathan, can you hear us? I can see you. I can see myself. That's kind of <laughs> fantastic. Crazy. Excellent. Well, I'm thank you for joining us, Nathan. I, I wish I could be there in person. Uh, Skype is way less cool than being there. Well, I don't know. You're on like a 20 meter wide screen. It's pretty cool from where we sit. <laughs> this is the year 2012. <laughs> Excellent. So look, before we hand over to you, um, and we can't really have a conversation because it's a bit too much lag here. But before we hand over to you and what looks like your couch, um, we will, I will give you a brief introduction. Um, so most of you would know Nathan or, or at least know of his games. Nathan is, is one part of Cappy in, uh, in Toronto. And it's very great to have you here. But I guess these guys have a similar story or an interesting story for all of us. And that is they exist in Toronto. They've had uh, the support of a local community. They started off, I think it was about six, six or seven years ago, starting with small, very small mobile games. And I'm not sure whether you want to get into that, but they're very small and you know, pre-smartphone, so their quality maybe wasn't incredible. But you guys did what you needed to do to get through to, to that original IP and nailed, obviously, the first one from the studio coming out. And, and the first one was a massive success being Critic Crunch. Uh, which obviously, you know, gave them the opportunity and, and afforded them uh, Super Brothers Ford and Sorcery, which is what we all know of um, one of the best games of, of 2011. Um, and obviously has been busy ever since getting that on every platform possible. Um, but, you know, that's kind of where you guys are at. And, you know, we're all massive fans. I, I would he uh, not even hesitate to say that pretty much everybody in the audience has played it. It's an incredible, incredible um, story of adventure, of, of story, of music, of, you know, apparently it's one part pagan. So a little bit of weirdness in there, but um, I can just say thank you for that. And we look forward to hearing from you on the state of play. Thanks. That's, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, that's uh, quite the intro. It, we spent a lot of our early years, I mean, three and a half years busting ass on 64 or 128 kilobyte games that you couldn't play. Uh, you couldn't actually press like two buttons at once. You could only press like one button. So like you could run right, but then if you wanted to jump, you had to like stop pressing right and then press jump. So it really like uh, confused and, you know, befuddled our brains about how making games actually was and how you actually go about making a game. Uh, so we did that for three and a half years and it, uh, I'm going to swear a bit, sorry that I do that all the time, but it fucking sucked. Um, it, it was really hard. Uh, it was, you know, we, I think we made a lot of really good stuff and I, I'm really, really proud of the work that the studio did. Um, we turned a lot of lemons into lemonade. Um, you know, cut our teeth on working with publishers and, and all the kind of ups and downs of mostly downs of that. Um, and so I, I really respect that period of time, partly because it really helped us learn 
um, but also partly because it really helped us appreciate the ability or, or having the ability to make your own stuff. Um, and it made it so much easier for us to, when afforded the opportunity to make our own work, uh, our own titles, uh, to take it very seriously, be very critical of what we were making and, you know, not just throw it away. Um, and it also meant that we knew that we had to make something relatively quickly. We couldn't put five years into a game because we were actually a studio that existed, that had a payroll, that had people that we wanted to keep working with. Um, so we just uh, made Critter Crunch in a relatively short period of time, a year and a half or so. It was originally only supposed to be a year, but... Um, and then, you know, through Critter Crunch, that afforded us some opportunities and, and kind of transformed our studio uh, into the studio that made Clash of Heroes and the studio that then was able to partner with uh, Super Brothers and Jim Guthrie on Sword and Sorcery, which is by far our most successful game to date. Hopefully the start of a sequence of more successful ones. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a bit about us. Um, I guess kind of the point is for, for me to be talking about where I kind of see games going and, and what I, I see, you know, as, you know, the future of, of game development or my studio in game development. Anyways, I'm just going to pick a stuff off the top of my head that I think, you know, is very interesting and also exciting to me about what's coming up and, and the kind of changes that have been happening because, uh, let's face it, games industry was totally different like three months ago. Um, probably changed on Twitter right now while I'm talking. Um, and these kind of are really amazing. Um, and really kind of, a, you know, highlight why it's so awesome to be a small developer. Um, apologies for all this. Getting a little bit of feedback. I can cut my talk. Every time I hear it, I feel like I sound like So try to pretend like I can. So, um, so one of the things that I'm super excited about, and I think we're going to see a ton is... Nathan, you've gone silent. I'm not even sure whether you can hear me. I can hear you. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, did, I, did I just cut out? You did a little bit. But let, let's give it another go. Yeah, where... Oh, man, I was on like a giant rant there. Oh. <laughs> Well, we knew that would happen. I gotta stop it. Uh, look, we, what we might do is, if we drop the call and start it again, we'll we'll give that a go. Okay. Excellent. Um, so, look in the in the meantime, um, while we grab that back up and throw Nathan up on on the screen as soon as we can, uh, we should also give our, our thanks to if that was bad for us. Imagine what it was like being relayed again to the guys in uh, in Ballarat and Geelong and Burwood. Um, <laughs> But yeah, thanks to, to DBI for supporting that program. I think it's, it's a program aimed at getting content from, uh, from the cities out towards uh, the regional centres, which is pretty cool, especially you know, when they get to see stuff like this. Well, hopefully not that. Um, so uh, maybe that's better. Can you hear me now? I can totally hear you. Excellent. There's still a little bit of lag, but look, we'll give it a go. And I'll okay. interrupt you if I need to. Okay, feel free. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump right back into um, the kind of um, air quotes state of play uh, stuff that I was thinking a lot about and have been thinking a lot about for quite a while now. Um, so the first thing that that I think is really kind of you know 
interesting to me and where I see things going is, so everybody's talking free to play. I'm sure somebody has already mentioned it. Um, I'm sure half the people in the audience are thinking about it or making free to play games. Um, so I kind of, you know, everybody's saying it's going to be the, the, that's the future. That's where all games are going. Um, but I think the interesting thing about free to play as kind of the future of game development, whether or not that's the case, is that people are playing inside this tiny little itty bitty bubble of free to play, but free to play is actually this giant thing. Um, and you look at something like League of Legends or uh, Three Rings, Puzzle Pirates, um, those are games that are playing ar along the fringe. And they haven't even really busted out of that. But I really do think that you're going to see a lot of really creative business applications of alternate takes of free-to-play coming from specifically independent studios because they're the ones that are afforded the freedom to do so. Um, I think there's a lot of room to kind of break free-to-play down and interesting in different directions uh, because all we're seeing right now is one, maybe two directions. We've you know, we see some in, semi-interesting stuff in the tribes and all the first-person shooter freedom. Um, but most of it is really just Farmville in a different style, Smurf Village in a different style. Um, but I definitely think there's a opportunity for free-to-play to change, you know, kind of become a, a weird creative game development in itself. Um, so I'm going about uh, another element of what I'm, you know, super excited about coming from the like I really like small, weird side of things. Uh, I think we're really seeing a lot of, like normalization. Uh, sorry, we missed that round as well. Did you hear me? I, I, I can hear you guys great. I hear random laughing every once in a while. Oh, that's good, because we are laughing. Um, look, what we might do is, uh, can I get you to maybe put your laptop on the table? Uh, yep. If you're wearing pants. I'm wearing pants, yeah. It's, it's shaking a little bit, but we, we should still be able to hear you. And it might cut down uh, on the data being tran transmitted. Let's give that a go. Okay, and now my head is right beside this poster, and it's really creepy. Okay. That's all right. Okay. Uh, so so did, just, just before you step off, did I get through the whole like free-to-play thing? You did, yes. I started on new stuff? Okay, good. That's good. Um, so the, the next thing that I was talking about was the, the normalization, kind of defringification of small, weird indie games. Um, you know, we're seeing games like Spelunky come to Xbox Live Arcade in HD format and kind of average population folk, that sounds a lot kind of a, a more elitist than I mean it, but um, average gaming public being really excited about something like Spelunky, which um, a very short period of time ago, if you would have told me that, I, I would have called you crazy. Um, even a game, a million unit seller like Limbo um, or even Sword and Sorcery, if you would have told me, you know, two years ago that those games would not be fringe games, would not be kind of, you know, the nichier of niche games, uh, that would have sounded crazy. Um, and I think that moving forward, going into you know, 2013, new console cycles, whenever the heck they come around, um, I think we're just going to continue to see um, games that usually past would be, you know, labeled as indie, artsy, fartsy games, um, 
become much more mainstream to do what Dear Esther did and kind of break out and become uh, a, a much more mainstream game than anyone ever could have expected. You know, games like uh, Offspring Fling started out as a game jam game or our next game that started out as a game jam game on major distribution platforms like Steam or Xbox Live. Um, I think that's providing a lot of opportunity for the game medium to grow and it also kind of pushes what games culture kind of is from a more, you know, comfortable state. I mean, it's really nice to have weird, strange stuff like JF Jeff. Sorry, you, you've dropped out again. Um, <laughs> we didn't even hear that. Um, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear from you guys. Do you want to? Do you want to? We can drop the video. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's try. Let's try Sans video. All right. Now you're a giant PowerPoint slide. I actually, that's what I look like in real life. <laughs> that's kind of weird. All right, let's let's see if that works out any better. Okay, it seems like I'm like I'm okay for a bit, and then as it goes on, it starts to drop. So maybe I'll, I'll 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 shorten my my blabbering down significantly. Um, yeah. So I, I was just talking a bit about how games, how it's really nice to see, and we'll continue to see games that used to be weird as shit uh, become pretty normal and usual, and I think that that the one side of it that really, you know, makes me super happy is it means that it's going to allow people to push the weird side either even further. Uh, if games like, you know, if games like Joust are normal, then what are the weird games going to be? And it's going to really kind of, um, I think, play a big role in breaking the whole games culture thing out much larger and providing opportunities for people who are really into very specific things to play games based around that. Um, so that's that's two of three of my like, hey, this is coming up and it's really cool. Um, the last one, we good still? Everybody hearing me? Yeah, we're if, fine. If so please clap really loudly. <laughs> Go Nathan. <laughs> so the last thing that I'm I'm really interested in seeing is something that I don't know how far off it is, but something that that I'm. No, I think is going to happen is you're going to, I really want to start seeing small teams, you know, 10, 12, 14 people making AAA retail projects. Um, I think the knowledge of the tech components experience with, you know, Unreal Engine or Unity or any of these kind of middlewares that have been around long enough or that afford really effective development, um, they're going to help people make big, crazy shit with really small teams. Um, and although this is not something I'm personally interested in doing or Cappy is interested in doing, I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, really amazing stuff. Uh, Hocket being a really cool example of a small team making AAA style. Like, you can put Hocket in a box and no one would be surprised. Um, and that's, a, I mean, they're a much bigger team now, obviously, but that, that is a small team game. And I think the super experienced Unreal programmers or super experienced source programmers, or those guys are going to help enable really small teams to be making, you know, really high-end games and really kind of the console retail game experiences 
except done with a twist that only independent people can put into it, that only small teams can put into the game. Um, and so for, for me, like, when we talk about console generation, when we talk about high-end PC gaming, uh, usually that comes with it 240-person teams. So I think, you know, having the opportunity to make games with 12-person or 14-person teams, but at the same kind of quality bar, uh, is going to be a really interesting, uh, I'm, I'm air-quoting, but you can see interesting uh, kind of evolution of, of game development. I don't know who's going to break that door down. Uh, I know that people are definitely already working on breaking that door down, but, you know, seeing really big, you know, kind of, especially on the on the on the FPS side that's just what people expect from AAA retail but in third person in you know really kind of like unique takes on adventure games all that stuff can happen with smaller teams and nowadays i think it can happen with like at that kind of box retail level of air quotes quality so those are those are the three things that i've been thinking a lot about the fact that free-to-play is at its infancy and that independent studios have the ability to kind of break that business model out into completely different directions. The fact that weird games are not weird anymore and the fact that small games can make huge games, those are the three big things that I see kind of as only progressing to be a component of the industry in the next, you know, five years or so. Not probably timely that you cut out again somewhere towards the end of your speech. Can you hear me, Nathan? I can. Excellent. All right. Well, look, we'll, we'll take that. Um, it might be tempting fate, but hey, we'll throw it to one or two questions. And if who's got a question? Yeah? David? Uh, I, don't, I don't take questions from David. Oh, really? <laughs> That's a shame. I'm kidding. Hi, David. I love you. I miss you. <laughs> um, so, um, my question, Nathan, was about the role of indie funds and the first year of uh, indie funds and how we see um, unique funding cycles like indie funds playing a role in this, um, in indie games kind of coming out and going mainstream. Did you hear that? Uh, yeah, I, I caught the gist of it. I think David is a quiet man. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think there's kind of two big pieces of that pie. The, the first piece is uh, Indie Fund is still trying to figure out what its role is in the kind of industry that we want to see and, and in independent gaming as a whole. Um, we're changing kind of on the fly to make sure that we try to figure it out but I think the big thing that we are we we will play a role in is is helping games that are on their way that you know have that kind of big step already taken but need that extra assistance that that extra push to get over the finish line so you know something like uh far away Steph Darian's far away or anti-chamber those are both games that that indie funds role is to you know, help them financially finish to to make a finished product instead of rushing out something part way through. Um, and I think that when it comes to a lot of smaller independent games, uh, you're forced by ex exterior means to, you know, hustle the game out. And that's usually the 
the worst kind of path to financial success. Another question? Yeah. Um, can I, can I, I'm going to anecdote. I was at a, a Japanese restaurant that serves like, you know, little tapas style dish. I don't know what the exact name of it is, but it's this place in, in Santa Monica called, called Furaibo. And it's this great little restaurant, really busy, tons of tables. And there is a table sitting beside us of maybe like 10, 12, uh, people who are like 17 to 19. And that whole table was talking about the Lindy Bundle. And most of them only knew what Limbo was or only knew what Psychonauts was or only knew what Bastion was. But all of them had a little bit of kind of, they were, they knew a bit about independent games, but only the big ones. Um, and hearing them talk about why they're interested in it, the amazing deal it is, and they just started playing this game uh, that they didn't know anything about because it came in the bundle, uh, was a really eye-opening experience because, I mean, I, I just assume everybody plays games, but... Tons of people don't, and affording them the opportunity to pick up a whole bunch of games they never would have played um, is is really. I mean, that's that goes a long way to expanding your um, and expanding the reach of really cool games that might not get that kind of play. Um, so I, I think it's great for that reason. Also, it's great because it's it's a really focused thing. It's really specific. It's four, five, seven games all thematically different or similar, but all with the same kind of idea behind it, which was a bunch of people making something that they want to make. And focusing on that style of game is really clean and clear and crisp, and everybody knows exactly what they're getting into. So I think it really does help focus at the indie scene way because the indie scene is so varied, and so it's, it's like walking through a pond. Uh, you can't really move quickly through it because it's just so much around you. Excellent. Thank you, Nathan. I think we'll leave it there. So if I can ask everybody for a round of applause. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.